An honorable profession is brought to you by Tech for America, an organization dedicated to providing a platform to solve America's toughest public challenges. For more information, visit t4a.org. That's t, the number four, a.org. We're also supported by opencounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities across this nation, including Atlanta, Charlotte, Oakland, Indianapolis, and San Diego. Check out opencounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out some of our past episodes with guests like Mayor Pete, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, Florida Representative Margaret Good, and more than a dozen amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Today, I talk with former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe. The conversation couldn't be more timely. We've been rocked by shootings in Gilroy and El Paso and Dayton. Virulent white nationalism is pervasive on social media and in communities and being promoted at the highest levels of our government. The governor experienced this all firsthand two years ago when a thousand white nationalists and Nazis marched through the streets of Charlottesville. A peaceful protester was killed, blood was spilled, and we are shocked by President Trump's equivocating. We talk about the governor's new best-selling book, Beyond Charlottesville, Taking a Stand Against White Nationalism. We also talk about how he thinks the Democrats are going to do in 2019, 2020, why he ran for office, and why he thinks you should too. Please enjoy our conversation. Governor Terry McAuliffe, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's great to have you. Ryan, thank you for having me. So we are, as we record this, we're just days after we've seen shootings uh, across the country of violent white uh, extremists. You've just written a book. It's on the cover of Newsweek. It's a New York Times bestseller. Tell us what we need to know as a nation and as local and state leaders about how we confront white nationalism uh, as, we're, as we're seeing it in virulent rise across this country. Well, as bad as Charlottesville was when we had, Ryan, a thousand neo-Nazis and white supremacists come into our beautiful state to scream the most vile things I've heard about African-Americans, about members of the Jewish faith, as horrible as that day was, and we lost Heather Heyer, 32-year-old, who was protesting against hate. I lost two of my state troopers that day. The one thing that did come out of it, it did rip the scab off of racism. I think far too long, Ryan, people felt that we had dealt with racism. It wasn't an issue, and it is an issue. And we have inequities in schools and housing and health care and criminal justice system. So uh, we've got to have an honest conversation. And it's unfortunate we have a president of the United States who is a racist and a white supremacist. 
I don't say that lightly, and it's not a political thing. To, but, I mean, if you look at his words and deeds, when he ran for president, he retweeted neo-Nazis and white supremacists. Um, he told Mexican, called them all, you know, rapists and murderers. He told, wanted a total Muslim ban. There's no place in this country for this kind of rhetoric. So what happened in Charlottesville is I think a lot of these folks, when Barack Obama got elected, they found it very hard to accept that a black man was president. But they didn't. They talked to him on themselves. They really didn't show their anger too much. And then Trump comes along. He's got the birther movement going on. And then he starts talking the way he's talking. These folks all of a sudden say, wow, if the president of the United States can do it, I can do it too. It is so horrible for our country. You had Charlottesville. You've just had El Paso. The manifesto that this killer had in El Paso quotes Trump tweets about white identity and white supremacy. So people got to stand up. First, I will tell you, Ryan, they got to vote. You know, 92 million people didn't vote in 2016, and we lost three states by 77,000 votes. And then you got to hold our elected officials accountable. The book I wrote, John Lewis wrote the forward, Congressman Lewis, and we collaborated on the back part. We say people got to do something. Politicians talk too much. It is time for action. Tell me about what kind of actions you think need to be taken. And your perspective is incredibly important because you were governor of a once red state, a purple state, a blue state. It's the seat of the Confederacy. Tell me about the actions you took and what we need to do as a nation to start healing these divides and and really combating this. Well, every governor in every state has different challenges. My big challenge when I went in as governor of Virginia, uh, Republicans had all the statewides and only 32 Democrats out of 100 uh, in our House of Delegates. I inherited one of the largest deficits in the history of the state. We got to work, Ryan. I left the biggest surplus four years later, created a record amount of jobs, retooled our entire state. But I leaned in on the issues that mattered. Uh, I was the first candidate or elected official in the South to come out for marriage equality. That was back in 2012 when people weren't doing it. I'm the first guy to get an F rating from the NRA, first nominee for governor of Virginia history. I told women I'd be a brick wall to protect their rights. And what happened is I got in and we were able to turn our economy around, got it humming, made Virginia open and welcoming and diverse so that everybody wanted to come to our state. I recruited and we got you know Nestle to move out of California, but we got Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon. We won the national bid. Why? open and welcoming, treating everybody dignity and respect. I had a humming economy. I put a record amount into K-12. I'm the first state that they teach cybersecurity beginning in kindergarten. So what we have to do is we, and this is the concern I have in these debates a little bit because the Democrats are talking about things that people at home don't care about or don't understand. Medicare for all, I mean, it's mind-numbing. They want to know, hey, how are you going to reduce my prescription drug prices? How are you going to stop out-of-network hospital costs? That's what we got to rely on focus on. And I don't like the idea that they're attacking Vice President Joe Biden because of President Obama's uh, policies, really. He was a great president. He has a 95% approval rate with Democrats. So my point is, we got to lean in. You know, I restored more felon rights than any governor in the history of America. I got sued by the Republicans. I did the most pardons of any governor in Virginia history. Um, you know, I took the Confederate flag off the license plates with executive. Lean in. Do something. And so when you leaned in, those sort of more conservative Virginia voters, 
how did they respond? How did you talk to them so that they knew? Uh, so, you know, I think so many Democrats are afraid to be labeled uh, as just for one group or another. Or, you know, how do how do you talk to, to rural Virginians about why you need to re- remove the Confederate license plate? Yeah. And, and I'll be honest with you. You know, when, when I went in, they were predisposed not to like me. I was from New York. I had been chairman of the Democratic National Committee, had been best friends with Bill and Hillary for many years. But I laid out a plan. You know, I mean, I said, here's what I'm going to do for you. And I really worked hard in these rural communities. And by the end of my term, Ryan, we had reduced unemployment by nearly 50 percent in every single rural county in Virginia. Now, they didn't particularly like some of my social you know, protecting gay rights and, you know, leaning in, protect women's rights to choose. But what they did appreciate is I was out there every day fighting for themselves and their children to get a high quality paying job. I brought jobs to their communities. And to me, I tell these Democrats, that's what you got to focus on. Jobs, 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 building the new Virginia economy. I talked about it every single day. And you can be the most liberal person and have the most liberal ideas. But if you don't have a thriving economy, you don't have the resources for your ideas. Why did I have the biggest investment in K-12? Because I turned my economy around and I had unlimited money to do, you know, the things we needed to do and the money I invested in mental health, opiate addiction, and all those things. Now, walk me through the days when you're governor and you have a thousand white supremacists descending on a college town of 60,000 people. Um, walk me through what that was like. Tell us, you know, what are the lessons you learned that are in the book today? Yeah. Um, what can we learn? Because more and more communities are going to have to confront just this kind of crisis. Yeah. So it was a thousand uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis. It started Friday night at the University of Virginia. And when you're on the grounds of the university, you look up and there's a big hill and it's, there's no lights. It's all dark. It's at nine o'clock. And all of a sudden, what you could see were hundreds in a big, long snake coming down the mountain. These were hundreds of these neo-Nazis and white nationalists with torches. And they're chanting, Jews, you will not replace us, blood and soil. It reminded you of 1933, 1934, Nazi Germany. And that's what they were trying to replicate. They had their swastikas and their Adolf Hitler T-shirts and all and so forth. And then they came onto the grounds of UVA, started throwing their torches at students. And that was Friday night. And then Saturday, it was it's almost incomprehensible uh, to see these thousand people and what they had said and what they were screaming at people. Uh, every other word was the F and N word. Every woman was called the F and C word. They were telling Jews they were going to burn them like they burned them in Auschwitz. And for me, it was very hard, Ryan, because how do people get? I mean, you're not born this way. Where do you get this viral hatred of a fellow human being? And so it's early, about 1130. I called a state of emergency. I cleared the park. We dispersed everybody. And actually, to be honest with you, Ryan, we felt pretty good. There hadn't been any serious injuries. No one gone to the hospital. No damage. The park had been cleared. The rally was supposed to start at noon. I started it before the rally even started. And then about an hour and a half later, this young guy, James Fields, this maniac, weaponized his car and drove down into a crowd of people in downtown Charlottesville, literally 
injuring 35 people, throwing them through the air, and killing 32-year-old Heather Heyer. And it was a couple hours later that uh, the state police helicopter crashed, and I lost two state troopers. It was a horrific day. And I said, and what was hard for me that day is I talked to the President of the United States and that day and told him what had happened on the ground and explained to him what he needed to do, that he needed to come out and address it first, call out the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists, tell them to stand down, and this will not be tolerated in our country. And then it was interesting, Ryan. An hour went by, two hours went by. He kept delaying the press conference. And then he finally came out and said there were good people on both sides and failed to use the word neo-Nazi and white supremacist. So I know what happened in those couple hours. The White House got to him and said, no, this is our base. We're not going after these people. And then I, of course, had to go out and do my press conference. And I called him out, called him neo-Nazis, white supremacist, told him to get the heck out of Virginia. Don't ever come back. Get the heck out of our country. You parade around like you're a bunch of patriots. You're a bunch of cowards. And But it was hard. And then that day, I had to go visit the two families and see Burke Bates' family and Jay Cullen's family. Both of them had two, two kids. Um, it was a hard, it was the worst day I've ever had to deal with in my life. Tell me about that phone call. Uh, we're watching Democratic elected officials being attacked as we speak uh, in, uh, after trying to, to have the president come to their communities. Um, tell me about that phone call and why, how the president ended up after a day like that saying there are good people on both sides. It's hard, Ryan. It's hard to explain. I thought at the end of my call, and I went through who these were, what they were saying, and I told the president, you've got to, you know, got to ramp this hate stuff down. You're hurting, you're hurting Virginia. You're hurting the country. You're hurting our economy. And then he went off on 10 minutes talking about how great the economy was. But I said, you know, and he said, well, it's you and I work together. You're right. We got to work together. So I felt pretty good. And as I say, his advisors got to, the guy has no moral core. And, you know, Bill Clinton had Oklahoma City. Barack Obama had Charleston and Sandy Hook and, and George Bush had 9-11. When you have a big incident in the country, they look to the president to be that moral leader, to come out, to heal, to bind, to bring us together. Trump just put gas on the fire. And to him, he doesn't care. It's all about what's going to help what he thinks in his mind re-election. That's the, that's the saddest part in all this. And, you know, he gave the speech the other day after what the, the tragedy in El Paso and Dayton. They were just words. He didn't apologize. He talked about hate speech. He didn't talk about his hate speech. He didn't even mention guns. So to him, it's all, it's a sham. How, how'd you help Virginia heal after this event? We got a bunch of communities right now that are hurting uh, how did you try to pull your state together in this in this political environment that's just so divisive and toxic? Um, what did you do at, in the days and weeks afterwards? Well, first, and what, what, what do we do as a nation going forward? Well, first, people in Virginia were pretty positive and about that I'd gone out and done, and the president had failed, and I'd gone out and do it. So they were they were proud of their governor for doing the right thing. I mean, I got calls from all over the world. John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, called me and said he brought tears to his eyes, and that helped. And then I did some executive orders. But the next morning, Ryan, you know, every national show, Meet the Press, Face the Nation, and wanted me to go on national television. And I said, no, I don't want to go on any of them. I need to speak to Virginia. So I went down to two of the oldest African-American churches in Charlottesville that day and preached from the pulpit that day. 
about, you know what, they came to hurt us, they hurt us, but we're going to come out stronger in this, and we all need to come together as a family and go forward. So I immediately started addressing went back to Richmond and did a big rally in, in Richmond. I, I put together a diversity commission to come up with recommendations, you know, about how we have to start teaching earlier in school about these issues. You know, this was something I leaned in on every single day and talked about every single day. And for me, it's not a tough discussion. But as I talk about in the book, it's hard for a lot of whites to talk about the issues of racism. They're not comfortable talking about it. But you got to start, you got to get out of your comfort zone and shake it up a little bit. So I'm interested because, you know, there's so much temptation to go on Twitter. There's so much temptation for leaders to go on the national TV and just get into it. But you went person to person back in your home state. For the leaders out there in their communities and states and cities, talk about talking about it. And then I I do want to hit on this idea of how do we address this legacy of racism um, as a country uh, in a way uh, that begins to heal because the, the, the system, the damage is so deep. Yeah. Well, I think one thing for a lot of people, as I say, this is a tough topic for a lot of people. Whites generally are not comfortable talking about it, but they need to. We need to, as I say, you need to get out your comfort zone. We have inequities in schools, I say. We have inequities in housing and healthcare delivery and the criminal justice system. Well, we got to elect people who are going to lean in on these issues. Too many politicians, in my mind, put their finger up in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. I mean, you know, that wasn't my style. You know, I kept getting sued by the Republicans when I was governor. As I say, I restored more felon rights than any governor in American history. I mean, and they kept suing me, and I loved it because I was fighting for what I believed in. So, you know, this social media has done such damage because it's so inflammatory. And in fairness now, Ryan, you have the rush in the box all involved in this. You don't know what is real and what isn't real. But I can tell you this. I know as a fact that the Russians are presently involved, uh, doing exactly what they did before. They want to talk and bring divisions and hatred and racism into the Democratic Party. They're trying to split us. Um, This is a tactic of of Trump, and we just can't let that happen to us. We just can't. So nothing's more important than the person-to-person for elected officials to get out there, to speak your mind, and don't do it in a political, vitriolic way. You know, do it because you believe in it. You know, voters are smart. They know when you're speaking from the heart, when you're speaking from talking points. Trump was talking from talking points. He was reading off a teleprompter the other day. Everybody knew that. I mean, people always knew with me I was passionate about a topic. Um, Even Republicans would say, you know, I don't like, you know, they didn't like my social agenda. I get that. But, you know, the guy said he was going to do and he's doing what he said he'd do. I give him credit for that. People appreciate that. Talk about your work around pardons because – because that's a major step to to remedy some structural, in, you know, racism uh, oh. a, a, that we've seen. And talk about, I mean, uh, I've heard you talk about cases in Virginia, and it's it's shocking that in 2019 America, this is still the reality. Well, in the southern states, it's particularly bad. Um, Virginia has a horrible history uh, on these issues. I, I talk about one pardon I did before I left the office, his name... Is Lenny Singleton. He and I got an award together last year for my pardoning of him. Lenny was a drug addict and, you know, committed five robberies. He was trying to steal money for drugs. He stole a total of $535. Nobody was injured. $535. So, Ryan, what do you guess his sentence was? 
for $535. Nine months. Two life sentences plus 130 years. It is almost hard to believe. I could sit here and tell you chapter and verse of other cases that I had to deal with with pardons. My point is, this goes back. It's built into our society. We got to fix it. And so I did have the most pardons of any governor ever. But, you know, when I got to Lenny, I think he'd already served like 20 years. I mean, really? Uh, If you're black and, you know, you go through this criminal justice system, you're going to be treated differently than a white person. And we got to fix that. We got to get rid of these mandatory minimum sentencing. You know, if you got a drug problem today, you should be in a drug court. You shouldn't be going to prison. So this is one area. And people say, what can we do? Lean in on this. You know, I reformed my entire criminal justice system, reformed my criminal juvenile justice. This is an area you really can lean in and fix. And and then it's also tied to voting rights, right? Because it's used as a way to disqualify people from... Well, your listeners are probably not going to believe this one either. But So Virginia, uh, a felony, the threshold was $200. So if you steal sneakers or sweater or whatever for $201, you're a felon in Virginia and you permanently lose your voting rights for the rest of your life. So we had many individuals who, young, stupidly, stole an iPhone or whatever, so they are permanently disenfranchised. It's only three states in America that permanently franchise, southern states, of course. So I took action. In fact, it was put in our Constitution, Ryan, in 1901, when a state senator by the name of Glass put it in the Constitution and said that day, I am doing this to eliminate the darky from being a political factor in Virginia. Well, 114 years later, through executive authority, my pen, I issued an order and gave 206,000 people back their right to vote. I'd gone back 65 years to give people their right to vote back. Republicans sued me, took me to the Supreme Court. I lost the first case. I won the second. And now there are nearly 200,000 people in Virginia who are back full citizens of the Commonwealth of Virginia. They got their rights back because this was personal to me. And, and people listening probably are baffled, like, really, this goes on in this day and age? But it does go on in this day and age. But, you know, I used to have fathers come up to me and say on election day, they'd go into a voting booth and try and find one of those I voted stickers that fall on the ground and put it on and go home because they're afraid to tell their children they didn't have the right to vote anymore. I mean, I can't tell you what it does to That's, people. That is tragic. That's yeah. heartbreaking. I think as a as a leader of the Democratic Party across this nation, tell us what you think. Where's the Democratic Party in 2019? How are we doing? What's going to happen in 2020 to the best of your ability? Yeah. Um, how, how afraid should we be? <laughs> well, let me say, first of all, Ryan, let's talk 2019, because we have a real shot at Trump. We have the Virginia General Assembly up this year. For the first time in 26 years, we can win the House, the Senate, and have the governorship. We're only down one seat in both chambers. And if the election were held today, we'd win both chambers. So this will be a real hit. So some of your listeners, if you got some free time in September and October, come to Virginia. We'd love to have you door-to-door canvassing. Uh, But it's a big deal for us. Next year, and listen, um, this is going to be a big year for us, obviously because of Trump in 2020. Sitting here today, I, you know, I feel very confident we'll win. I do think a big percentage of those 92 million people who did not vote in 16 are going to come out. They came out after 16 and 17 in Virginia, the biggest wins in 140 years. And you know, as you know, we won the House last year. We won seven new governors and eight chambers. There is passion out there. But they're going to do everything they can. They are dirty. Uh, they are going to use Russia. 
Um, there is no low that Donald Trump won't go. So we got to be prepared for it. We got to, you know, have our A game going, mobilize. They're going to try and disenfranchise voters. They're going to do their normal tricks and take them off the rolls and duplicate signatures and all this nonsense that they always do. But this is our time. And we really have to do it because of getting 2020 back. And if we have a huge win, then we can get control of the Senate. The thing that really bothers me in the last couple of years is we have really handed over the federal judiciary to the Republicans and to the conservatives. For a generation. Oh, at least a generation. And really, the damage that that 16 election did to our nation. And now you got Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the court. Um, you know, they're ultimately, I mean, their goal is to overturn Roe v. Wade. And they are marching toward that path to do it and a lot of other issues. And it's really unfortunate. And that, these are lifetime appointments. I can't go back and look at that, but we've got to, we've got to win, and we've got to win the Senate in 2020 so that we can begin to put our judges on, and we've got to control this White House for many years to come. Does it worry you, the Democratic infighting right now among the candidates, or among the factions? I don't like it. I didn't, I'm, I've been very public. I think the debates have been too nasty. Uh, really? Attacking Joe Biden on Barack Obama? Really? Um, I don't think they're hitting the issues that they need to be hitting, and they're going after each other. We've got a perfect foil in Donald Trump. I mean, spend mo- if we just talk to the American public in these debates about what we want to do for them and focus on Trump, that is a winning message. But Democrats, your plan is horrible. Your plan sucks at all. The world's coming down. You know, people turned out that debate and said, I, I don't know. I mean, we own the issue of health care. I mean, that is something that Americans trust Democrats on. Watching those debates, they're clueless now. And immigration, we're always playing on his battlefield. And listen, we've got to make sure we take care of everybody. They watch that debate. Well, everybody can come across the border. Trump's going to say open border Democrats. You know that. Then they all said they're going to give him health care. Americans sitting home say, wait a minute. They're getting free health care. I paid for my health care. It's, it's the way we're framing these messages and issues. It's not helpful. So what people may not know about you is you're a successful businessman. You've started many, yep. many companies. Yep. Um, the title of this podcast is An Honorable Profession, Bobby Kennedy's quote about going into elective office. What, what makes you keep staying involved in politics? You could do a lot yep. of things. Yeah. You're out hustling county to county for the Virginia yep. Democratic Party or for going around yeah. the country. Like, what is it? What is it about politics that keeps you so uh, engaged? Well, I always loved politics. Beginning as a young man, I'd go door to door. My father was a political activist up in Syracuse, New York, so I had it in my blood at an early age. I started my first business at 14 years old. Became a successful company. Um, started 30 different businesses. I've been a real entrepreneur. I've seen ups. I've seen downs. I've seen it all. And you know, I've spent probably more than half my life as a full-time volunteer for the Democratic Party. <laughs> um, but for me, that's the way I give back. I, you know, I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm a kid from Syracuse. You know, I was the president of the United States finance director at the age of 23 years old. Became best friends with the president of the United States. And, you know, so for me, I say, my, you know, it's been a great... I just want other people to have the same opportunities that I had. But I know that... And that's why I wanted to ultimately run for office. As governor, it's the greatest job in the world. I'll be honest with you, Ryan. I mean, you have so much executive power, especially in Virginia, that as I say, through my 
my pen, restored more felon rights, the pardons. You know, you can change people's lives. I'll be very honest with you. I would never be a United States senator or Congress. It, it, I don't mean this disrespectfully. It's just not my personality. I'm an executive. I like to get out of bed. I, I see a problem. I want it fixed by 5 o'clock. And if it isn't fixed, I want to know why. And you just can't do that in the legislative chamber. But, you know, everybody's different. But, you know, I love being governor. I love that job more than anything else. But, you know, uh, helping people and as a kid who, as I say, started his first business to pay for college at 14 years old. I've come a long way and I've loved it. But I want it, you know, like a rung of a ladder. I don't want to take that rung out beneath me. I want people, I want to put my arm down, help the next person up that ladder. If I may be so bold to ask, what's your future political career? You're, you got a lot of experience, you got a lot, a yeah. lot of a lot of things you can bring. What, what are you looking at? So this year I'm back. Uh, I decided not to run for president. And I'm back helping Virginia because we had some issues in Virginia. So I've done every night I'm out doing one or two events for candidates. I do them every single night. I've raised a lot of money to help the party to win the House and Senate. And I feel good about that. And then I've got to make a decision in the future. I mean, I got a lot of options. Some people want me to run for governor again. Some people say you should go in the cabinet. I don't know, sitting here today, what I'm going to do, but I'm always going to be in the game. I'm always going to be trying to help people, and I just haven't figured out what that's going to be. You know, I've one thing I tell young people, I give a lot of commencement addresses, you know, don't plan too far ahead. I've never done that because opportunities come along, and if you've got your mind set, you're going to do this, and opportunity comes along, you may miss it. You know, I tell the story. I was at law school, started a week, and was going to law school. I had a buddy of mine living in, a, we lived in a big group house, you know, had a keg in the tub, the whole deal. You know how it is. <laughs> yeah. And he was working for President Carter, and he said, you want to work on the campaign? I walked away from law school. My mother cried uh, to go work for Carter's reelect. Didn't look like he could win. You know, Ryan, I ended up going to 40 states at 22, 23 years old and ended up being the president's finance director at the age of 23. Had I not taken that chance to walk away from law school and go work on a campaign that ultimately didn't win, but I won, uh, my whole life changed. So I tell people, who knows what's going to happen in life? Try it. And try something new and do what you love doing. I don't do anything I don't love doing. I've never worked for anyone in my life. I just do it. I you know, get up to that batter's box and I swing and sometimes I win, sometimes, sometimes I hit, sometimes I don't. But, you know, you only live once. Go for the gusto and help people. So last question. I always imagine there's some listener out there. She's a young attorney. She's working in a big corporate law firm. She thinks, ah, maybe I should run for office. I'm mad about this. I'm excited about this. Make the case to run for public office in America today. First, I'm very proud of all the women candidates that have stepped up to the plate in this country. Really extraordinary. Of our 15 wins and 17 in the House of Delegates, 11 were women. I mean, extraordinary. And I would say to everybody, go run. What's the worst thing can happen to you, Ryan? You lose. So what? You know, my life didn't change. I ran for governor in 2009. And I ran on a platform of big ideas, high-speed rail, renewable energy. I said, if you don't like my big ideas, don't vote for me. Ha! And they didn't. I got crushed. But you know what? I got out of bed the next day. And I got right back at it, campaigned for the next four years, and became the 72nd governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. It's not about winning or losing. It's going out and fighting for the things that you believe in. And, you know, sometimes luck may be there, may not be. That, that's not the issue. 
But if you believe passionately about something, go do it. It's a great experience. If you lose, get up, try it again, win again. But you can't complain from the sidelines. Get in the arena. As I say, you know, it was a pretty... When I ran in 09, people didn't even know I lived in the state of Virginia. They say, oh, I used to see Terry on TV. I thought he lived in Florida or New York. You know, if you believe you got a mission, believe you got ideals to get done, go do it. It's your life. <laughs> Thank you, Governor, for joining Thanks, us. Ron. I encourage everyone to get out, read his brand new best-selling book, uh, and then follow, take his advice and make a run for office. Go for it. It's All also right. an audio. <laughs> it's also available in audio. <laughs> Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep this honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>